1: If you want early access to next week's episode and ad-free listening, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV or Resonate Originals. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence, drug use, and other graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: With Andrew, there's zero closure. There's so many questions. Who was he with? Why was he with them? Sheila described this Gene person to me, and I had never met him, nor have I heard of him. I was like... This doesn't make any sense. So I started doing some investigations and I was very adamant on it because I was just, I was pissed. I was so mad.
1: When Andrew Wall died of an apparent overdose just days after Christmas of 2022, his loved ones were left with loads of questions and very few answers. But in the early days of grief, one friend of Andrew's, for better or worse, decided to cast it all aside in hopes of sharing his story and more importantly, keeping his case and name alive. The friend I'm talking about is Brianna Sturm. Bree for short. You heard from her just briefly in our last episode, but it's important that we take some time to better highlight her, her friendship with Andrew, and more recently, her involvement in his case. In the months following his passing, she has become a driving force, keeping pressure on the authorities while sharing his story on social media, the same way I learned about it. So I guess you could say, She's the reason I'm here to tell it now.
2: Hey guys, guess what? We are getting Andrew's story to a podcast. It is now confirmed. I didn't want to say anything until it was confirmed, but it is confirmed. Andrew was never one to embark on the attention, but (laughs) how do you feel, Andrew? He's so humble about it.
1: This is a culpable case review. Andrew Thomas Wall, part two. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Safe. It's the award-winning home security I use and recommend. I'm relieved to know that while my days get longer and longer this month, and my family and I are starting to venture back into the outdoors to enjoy the spring weather, I won't have to sweat about whether or not my home is protected, because I know that Safe has my back. There's a reason they were named Best Home Security Systems of 2024 by U.S. News & World Report and recognized for Best Customer Service in Home Security by Newsweek. Simply Safe's advanced technology keeps every room of my house protected. And if my cameras and alarms aren't enough to deter a thief, then I can trust in their 24-7 professional monitoring for fast emergency response at just half the cost of traditional home security. We're talking less than a dollar a day. You really can't beat it. Do yourself a favor, protect your home today. My listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit SimplySafe.com slash culpable. That's simplysafe.com slash culpable. There's no safe like Simply Safe. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news,
4: I think we haven't done our room yet. Like, we've never painted our room or anything. It's like the last room that's
1: going to be done. When you retire from Rover? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) After an extended but insightful visit with Bill and Sheila in their home, I've started to piece together more details about Andrew's life and his final days. Knowing there was still so much to learn, especially around those final days, and that our next guest was en route to the Walls home, we took a welcomed hiatus and moved into the kitchen. Dinner had arrived from La Rosa's Pizzeria, the same place that Andrew happily worked at for years. And fortunately, Bree joined us just in time to break bread. As we stood around the kitchen with plates in hand, exchanging pleasantries and funny stories of the past, I couldn't help but get the feeling that I was at a family dinner. I mean, obviously we're eating a meal together, but I don't know, it was just different. It felt like this was just a normal day for the three of them. And frankly, it probably was. While we may be new additions, Bree and the Walls go way back. And they've only grown closer since Andrew's passing. But Bree has always been considered family. She and Andrew met each other near the end of elementary school through a mutual and very important friend. And that's where we'll start.
2: Yeah, Andrew and I met through our best friend, Kelsey, who was his next-door neighbor. We met around fifth grade, and then it was just the three musketeers since then. We were all together. Like We'd come back from school. We'd go to one of our houses, whether it was Kelsey's or Andrew's or my house because I had the pool, Uh, all through middle school and then into high school.
1: But so how did the three musketeers become three musketeers?
2: I mean, like, Why did y'all hit it off so well? Yeah, um, I don't know. That's a good question. Um Kelsey was spicy, okay? She would go to war with, for her friends in general. Andrew and I were more so like peacekeepers. With Kelsey, I was like, I have a backbone because I have a literal backbone that will knock somebody's teeth out for me. And then Andrew, you know, kept his peace, but also, you know, would hype us up if we were ever involved in any sort of drama. But I guess really what brought us all together was just the fact that we were always together. Um, Three Musketeers kind of more so formed in middle school. When people started getting their hearts broken, having their first crushes and everything, we kind of just had a mutual agreement that was like, we're going to look out for each other no matter what.
1: The three friends were inseparable, there for each other through thick and thin. During the most formative years of their lives, they could always rely on one another. And if you've lived those years, you know how important that is. So when one day out of nowhere, tragedy struck the high school clique at ages 17, it was absolutely devastating. And to clarify, I'm not talking about what happened to Andrew, we'll get there. I'm talking about the other musketeer, their friend Kelsey.
2: Kelsey and I had went, we had gone to a friend's house and we were watching the rain fall and it was a pretty good night. But we woke up the next morning and Kelsey was like, she was like choking and breathing heavy and she was looking at me like wide-eyed. And she was like, it feels like an elephant is sitting on my chest. And I'm like, Kelsey, you need to go to the hospital. And she's like, no, I'll be fine. Let me just go back to my boyfriend's house. Um, So we said, love you and you know, did farewells. And then a couple hours later, her boyfriend called me and was like, we had to call an ambulance. She collapsed. And I was like, what?
1: Brie immediately rushed to the hospital, as did Andrew. And eventually their families arrived too. Brie remembers that day vividly and how everyone was holding out hope that Kelsey would somehow pull through, despite the unnerving reality they were faced with.
2: She had a heart attack, and then when they took her into the hospital, they were doing a bunch of tests and everything trying to try and figure out why a 17-year-old had a heart attack. Gray's anatomy can't prepare you for what you actually see when somebody's intubated like that. There was so many wires connected, like from head to toe to her ankles. I didn't even know what they were connected to, but she was super pale. She looked almost just like, already passed but they wanted me to talk to her and see if, like, I could get any brain activity. And I tried to play some music, and she wasn't responding, and that's when I kind of gave up, and I ran out into the hallway, and I ran to Andrew, and I was like, she's not there.
1: The next day, doctors pulled the plug and warned the friends that she'd likely only have a few hours left in her. But Bree said that Kelsey managed to push out eight, and they cherished each one of those hours with her in that hospital room. Kelsey passed away on December 31st, New Year's Eve of all days. And just like that, Bree and Andrew's closest friend was stripped away at just age 17. Later, it was discovered that Kelsey had a heart defect, which contributed to her death.
2: And that completely ruined that holiday for me forevermore and Andrew. So it was very different, the dynamic of those holidays and then leading up to Andrew, too, you know... January 3rd, but he might have actually passed away on the 28th, around the same time as Kelsey, so that whole season, not a good look for us, me. <laughs>
1: Shit. As you can tell, it's a little harder for Bree to talk about Andrew's death, understandably. This interview was just a few months removed from it. Not to mention, the two were very close. The loss of Kelsey certainly took its toll but it also managed to strengthen Bree and Andrew's bond, as they did everything they could to try and move forward as a unit, though the growing pains would persist a bit longer.
2: After she passed away, I got my car, and we named it K Breezy in her honor. And it was a grand damn Pontiac. It was 2009, and it had a sunroof, and I was like, oh, yeah, she was going to love this. So me and Andrew took it for a spin, and we went to his friend's house. And at the time, I didn't really have a whole lot of hours. Like, I had just done driving school. That was it. So I just got put into a new car, and I was, like, expected to go. So anyways, Andrew tells me to go straight, and I was like, okay, the street kind of curves a little bit, so I deadass went straight, and I hit a rock, and I just went, whoop, and I, sm- I flipped my car upside down, going 25 miles an hour.
1: Moments like these happen so fast, it's hard to remember all the details. But as Bree was positioned upside down in the driver's seat, she just recalls seeing glass and McDonald's french fries everywhere. After coming to their senses, the pair waded through the carnage, and managed to escape through the windows. Thankfully, Bree was still intact and virtually unharmed. And there was Andrew, right by her side as always, also unscathed. Of course, the same can't be said about Bree's new car.
2: I looked at my car and I was like, oh my God, and I just started sobbing. Like, my engine is smoking and everything. And Andrew comes up to me and I'm, I'm on the ground. He puts his hands on my shoulders. he's like, it's okay, Bree, I think we can fix it. <laughs> And I was like, Andrew, are you serious right now? He's like waving it off like, you know, no, we got it. We can fix it. And I'm just like, all right, Andrew, I'm tuning you out right now because like this is just, you're living in a fantasy and I want to be in that fantasy, but I cannot be. Like that's my car and it's gone. (laughs) That's the only thing that kind of pushed each of us through was our humor. That's the only way we could do it. Otherwise, we'd just be sobbing. We definitely got way closer after that.
1: Bree and Andrew's friendship was forged through hardship. Even as the years passed and they matured and changed, they always had a lifeline in each other. But after graduating high school, their relationship would start to change a little. Contact became more infrequent. They started hanging out less, a slight drifting apart. No reason in particular. I'm sure most of us have experienced this same post-graduation symptom. But after some separation, you tend to realize who your real friends are, which is what they did. Upon reuniting, they quickly moved into an apartment together, now in their early 20s. Bree tells us that apart from Andrew being a little messy, which she knew she was getting into, she really enjoyed living with him. They made a lot of memories in their short time together at that apartment. But eventually, Bree got into a serious relationship And shortly after her boyfriend moved in, Andrew decided to move back home with his parents and let them have the apartment. And once again, the pair would start to drift apart a little over the next few years, still maintaining their friendship, of course, just at more of a distance. But Bree knew it was only a matter of time before they'd return to their old ways.
2: No matter how much time or space went between speaking to one another, it was always going to be that close, kind of like... A sister or a brother would, like, you know, you guys can have your own lives, but as soon as you need something or if, like, anything comes up, you're immediately going to go turn to that person, and that's what we would always do is, you know, just run back to
1: each other. In 2022, Andrew, now age 26, rented his first solo apartment in downtown Cincinnati, and this is where he and Bree would reunite just a short time later, in December of that year, just a few weeks before his passing. It happened out of the blue one day when Bree saw a notification pop up on her TikTok account. Andrew had randomly commented on a video she posted and she immediately replied.
2: And I was like, I've been texting you, dude. Like, Where have you been? And he's like, oh, I got a new phone. So um, I text him, he's like, we should hang out. And he asked me if I wanted to come see his apartment. And I was like, absolutely, fuck yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I wanna see where you're living. So I went and visited him. A couple days later, I think it was the 17th, and we went up onto the rooftop of his apartment. We sat up there and I took a video of us too. I was like, look at who's back. Only nine stories, it's fine, guys. But look at this view. And look at this view. Uh, the back, bitch. Ah, i fucking here, I love you.
1: Bree tells us that as teenagers, they were known to hang out on a roof or two. So it was really cool to reconnect on top of Andrew's new apartment, of all places. As you can tell, it was as if no time had passed between the two of them. But sadly, their reunion would be short-lived, as fate would take a hard turn in the coming weeks. It all started around Christmas.
2: I texted him on the 26th, and was like, hey, Merry late Christmas, I'm sorry, you know, it's late, and I didn't get a response back. And then after that... I didn't hear anything, but I didn't really think anything of it either.
1: Now, I should mention that, in a way, Bree was expecting to hear from Andrew. Because about a week earlier, on December 20th, right after their brief hangout at the apartment, he texted Bree, asking if she could help him activate his Venmo debit card through a money transfer. He didn't give any other context as to why, and Bree didn't pry because ultimately it was an easy ask. He sends her $5 on Venmo, she returns the money, he's good to go. Either way, Andrew never sent anything that day, so Bree wasn't able to follow through with the favor and kind of assumed he figured out another solution. About a week passes. And then on the 26th, Bree tries to get a hold of Andrew, not about the Venmo, just to check in, but she gets no response. Then, the following day, December 27th, Andrew finally reaches out. Interestingly, he was following up about the Venmo request from a week prior.
2: He messaged me, and was like, hey, if I send you money on Venmo, can you send it right back to me? I just need to get it onto my Venmo debit card. I was like, sure. It was just a Venmo sent notification to me. It just said, boop, in his writing. And then I sent it right back and I said, beep. (laughs) And so then after that, I didn't hear from him. I didn't get to send him happy. happy.
1: I want to point out that 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 nowhere in the instructions listed on Venmo's website regarding card activation Do I see where you need to transfer money with another person in order to activate? So that's interesting. But maybe there's something I'm missing here. Bree still doesn't know what to make of the whole Venmo thing. This seemingly odd exchange would sadly be the last interaction she'd ever have with Andrew. After this, things would take a turn for the worse. We'll fill in the gaps in a moment, as there's going to be a lot to discuss in the week leading up to Andrew's passing. But first, let's jump to January 3rd when after not hearing from Andrew for a week straight, Bree received a call from Andrew's friend, Davida. And this is the moment Bree would learn, for the second time in her life, that she'd lost a best friend. Andrew was gone.
2: And I was like, what do you mean gone? Because in the past, Andrew has taken off. He has gone on trips before. Like, it wasn't abnormal for things like that to happen. So I was like, what do you mean, like, he's gone? And she was like, no, dude, like, he's actually gone. Like, he's he passed away. And it kind of took me a long time to process that. And I honestly still to this day, like, I've compartmentalized so much of everything where I'm like, I'm not even living in this reality most of the time to keep myself sane. It's just not possible that I've lost two best friends of over 10 plus years. Like, those people that molded me and to the person that I am now are no longer here.
1: At this point, Bree can't really say that she's accepted the hand she was dealt, but she has learned how to live with it and do what she can to honor the two people who meant the world to her. She says the loss of Kelsey was different. A freak health incident at such a young age. The trauma was unimaginable. But at the end of it all, she at least had answers. She knew why it happened. With Andrew, it was different. In his case... So much felt like a mystery, and that didn't sit right with her.
2: I was watching everybody grieve, but I, was, I had already been through this before. So I was like, I know how to take over. I can put my feelings aside and like really go into this a lot deeper, kind of as a sleuth. So I started doing some investigations.
1: And this is about the time that Bree started sharing Andrew's story on her TikTok page to try and raise some awareness and hopefully find some answers. Eventually, Bill and Sheila would join arms with her, creating an open chain of communication as it pertained to Andrew's case, and Bree would continue to update the public on her page. Though she admittedly had no idea what she was doing, we can let this podcast be a reminder that it worked. The spotlight was growing, and these quasi-detectives were dead set on finding out what happened to Andrew. Fortunately, Bill and Sheila had already gathered a lot of information since his passing. If you remember from our last episode, there were some immediate red flags from the moment Andrew's body was found on January 3rd. When Bill arrived at the apartment that day, just after the police, he noticed that Andrew's car was missing from the lot. This was obviously alarming, since Andrew was now accounted for. Naturally, Bill worried that the car might have been stolen, a theory that would be further supported when the family discovered that other items of value were missing from the apartment, as Bree would go on to discuss.
2: They went through very meticulously and found every single one of his valuables and made sure to take that with them. Nothing was left behind. And that, to me, just like seems like they took their time.
1: Some of the missing items included Andrew's car, credit card, phone, laptop, PlayStation, his crystal collection, which Bree described as having significant value. Even more concerning was his missing jewelry, as these items would have been on his physical person, most notably a $500 pinecone necklace, which Andrew cherished. And there was some other jewelry he'd recently acquired.
2: The earrings are what really get me, because, like, Andrew would really give anything. Especially if his life was in danger, he'd be like, take it, take it all, I don't care. But he was raving to me about his newly pierced earrings. Like, he wouldn't even be able to get those things out of his ears at that point, because they were that fresh.
1: It's impossible to know for sure what happened to all these items. Could Andrew have sold them or given them away? It's possible. The Walls checked several pawn shops in hopes of tracking down at least one item, but were unable to find anything. Thankfully, the police had also been hard at work, and they were about to share a very important update. They'd located Andrew's car. It was parked on a downtown street near the library, just a couple miles from his apartment. Could Andrew have simply broken down and left it there? they need to determine who the last person in possession was. So detectives then checked to see if any nearby cameras caught the identity of the person who left it there. And sure enough, one camera caught something. We were unable to obtain the footage, so I can only share what detectives told the family. But it's my understanding that through examining the notably grainy footage, authorities were able to partially identify the driver. Supposedly, it was a black male who parked the vehicle before exiting and walking out of frame. In other words... It wasn't Andrew. Furthermore, after acquiring possession of the vehicle, Bill and Sheila would discover an assortment of items, from Tupperware to clothing, that they didn't know to belong to Andrew, almost as if someone had been living out of the car, but not their son. Regardless, finding Andrew's car was a big step in the case. Detectives now had a lead. And while this didn't reveal the full story behind all the missing items, the walls at least had better proof that one of those items was taken. As they continued to wait on the autopsy results to reveal the cause of death, the question in their minds became more about who Andrew was with in the days leading up to his death. Now, I want to be clear that authorities have not labeled any persons of interest in this case, but the family has their suspicions, especially around the man we mentioned in our last episode, who was known as Gene. To their knowledge, Gene was a homeless man who Andrew met on Christmas Day, subsequently offering up his apartment as a place to stay until Jean could get back on his feet, as Andrew stated. At first, the family had no way of knowing that Jean actually stayed inside the apartment, only that arrangements were made. But after a handwritten note was recovered from the trash can inside Andrew's apartment, they got some confirmation that Jean had in fact been with Andrew in the apartment, and it seemed there'd been a second person there as well. The note wasn't dated, but based on what we know, it's safe to say it's written sometime between December 26th and December 31st. We covered this note in our last episode, but I'd like to read it again as a refresher. Here's what it said. D. Me and Jean went to hustle. We'll only be gone for 30 to 40 minutes. There's coffee and a vitamin C drink to help you feel better. You're more than welcome to stay the night if you like. We love you, and we'll see you soon. Your stuff will be placed on the table. Respect. Andrew and Gene. There's different theories you can draw about the note. First of all, this D person, who the family had never heard of, obviously wasn't feeling well, to the point that Andrew thought they'd benefit from taking some vitamin C. There's that caretaker in him. Now, D may have just been suffering from your typical illness, or maybe they were sleep-deprived or something. But I have to wonder if it could be related to drug or alcohol intake, a hangover of sorts. Because the other part I find interesting is in the opening, when Andrew says that he and Gene went to hustle. Again, there's many ways you can interpret this, but if we're talking about the most common association, again, my mind goes towards drugs in some form or fashion. Family and friends say they didn't typically know Andrew to use this word, so ultimately there's no way of knowing what he meant. But it certainly gives a feeling that something shady could have been going on between the three of them. And Bill was about to acquire some additional information that would further assert the suspicious behavior after pulling Andrew's credit card report from the days in question. If you remember from the last episode, Bill first caught wind of some unusual activity on Andrew's card while Andrew was still alive. Andrew was practically living off his credit card at the time as he was not working, so it wasn't really unusual to see a bunch of activity on the card. But Bill received a call from the credit card company on December 27th about some concerning charges and immediately called Andrew about it. Bill says that Andrew seemed agitated, and not like himself on that call. But ultimately, Andrew explained the charges, and Bill assumed there was nothing to worry about. Of course, after Andrew's passing, Bill would decide to take things a step further, and pull the reports to see what exactly had been going on with Andrew's card. And boy, would the reports raise a lot of questions. The charges started on December 26th, and ended on December 29th. The reports I received from Bill show 65 individual charges during that four-day period. And while the quantity of charges do concern me, it's really the patterns within those charges that leaves me perplexed. Now, I'm not going to go through each individual charge, but I would like to share some examples of what I'm talking about here so you can start to understand. First, you should know that the majority of charges occurred at various gas stations across downtown Cincinnati. More gas stations than I visit in a typical year. And outside of a couple DoorDash orders, the rest of the charges took place at different grocery and convenience stores, Kroger and Family Dollar, to name a couple. I find it strange that of all the places he could have visited in those days, he'd go to that many different businesses that are practically selling the same things. Food, home essentials, gas, gift cards. And then you start to notice other patterns, like what appears to be back-to-back charges at the same establishments. I'll share a few examples here we'll just focus on some charges from December 26th as these same patterns carry over into the other days. On December 26th, at 5.08 in the morning, he spends $16.01 at the Shell gas station. Four minutes later, he spends another $35.03 at the same place. About an hour and a half later, at 6.55 a.m., he spends $100 at the local Sunoku. Two minutes later, an additional $9.92 is spent there. These same trends persisted through the night. At 7.15 p.m., he spends $32.37 at BP. Six minutes later, another $32 is spent there. From 8.59 to 9.05 p.m., he made four $20 transactions at a different Shell station from the one he'd visited earlier that morning. And the last charge of the day came just 20 minutes later, at 9.25. $29.36 at BP, but a different location from the two other BPs he visited that same day. I've really struggled to make sense of these charges. While it's technically possible that these were all routine food and gas fill-ups, truthfully, that theory doesn't sit right with me. But the family just wants to know how there's no camera footage of any of these transactions. It's a fair question to ask considering that authorities were able to obtain footage of Andrew's car being dumped. But shockingly, of all these charges happening across downtown Cincinnati at over 20 different establishments and who knows how many neighboring establishments, the family has been informed that no footage could be obtained. Now, I'm not much of an optimist when it comes to security cameras, especially in the scope of an investigation. I've learned many times over that cameras can sometimes just be a decoy. Other times, businesses learn that the cameras they thought to be operational were instead not working. And oftentimes, recorded footage is quickly erased to make space for newer recordings, making it all the more difficult for evidence to be obtained. No matter the situation, it shouldn't technically come as a shock to hear that authorities struck out on obtaining camera footage. It happens all the time. But again, in this case, it is a bit alarming when you consider just how many places could have captured something, and presumably did not. The unfortunate reality is, without video proof, it will be difficult to ever piece together what Andrew and possibly Jean or Dee were up to in the days in question. I just know that when you put it into context along with all the other strange happenings we've covered thus far, you're left with an abundance of suspicious activity over a short span of time. And it seems like authorities may have caught that same vibe. Because while I cannot speak to the thoroughness of their investigation, as it is still an active case, it is definitely safe to say that in the months following Andrew's death, they were investigating. In fact, two departments have been involved in Andrew's case up until now. Cincinnati PD initially handled the scene at the apartment and eventually recovered Andrew's missing car. And more recently, a Hamilton County task force has stepped in to lend assistance. More on that in a minute. Bill and Sheila admit to being mostly satisfied with the investigation in the early months, but recently they're not really sure how to feel because it's been hard for them to shake the feeling that things changed a little after the release of Andrew's autopsy report back in February of this year. So let's talk about that. On February 9th, 2023, Dr. Karen Lumen, the coroner, revealed Andrew's autopsy results. The results were a crushing blow to the family, but for the first time they had some semblance of an answer. Andrew's death was listed as accidental. The cause, cocaine and fentanyl intoxication. He overdosed. A tough reality for any parent to accept, but Bill and Sheila find it even harder to fathom because it wasn't like Andrew cared to hide his drug usage. They were well aware, but they'd only ever known him to use marijuana and psychedelics, namely mushrooms. If he'd been using any serious drugs, such as cocaine, he never informed them, and his behavior never really seemed to indicate it. Nonetheless, the results were clear. Andrew overdosed from ingesting cocaine, laced with fentanyl. He was found seated upright on his couch. So, what does this mean for our story? Well, first it means that unless Andrew was forcibly drugged, he does have culpability in this, at least on paper. So the question is more about the degree of culpability. I spoke with Bill and Sheila about this, and they raised some solid questions. For one, who sold him the fentanyl-ace cocaine, a known deadly substance? Also, who had the cash to pay for them? Remember, Andrew only had a credit card at the time, because he wasn't working. And another thing. If there were others with them, were they also partaking? And if so, how did they manage to survive?
2: I feel like there's a lot of different ways that you could look at it. Like I said, I've broken this down so many times in my head. If they were doing coke, which is a communal drug, you wouldn't be doing it by yourself with a group of people. Andrew would have done this by himself because he was smart, okay? Andrew would not have just done this and just, like, been looking around the room like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do it first. Like, he wouldn't have done that.
1: Now, to some, a fentanyl overdose might be all you need to hear. End of story. But my hope is that it instead leads you to re-examine everything I just shared through a different lens because there's still one heck of an argument to be made around foul play here. At the very least, you can say there's more to this story. I mean, his car was missing— and cameras would eventually find it abandoned by an unknown person sometime after Andrew's death. His credit card was missing, as was his phone. Neither item has been recovered. And these make up just a fraction of the missing items. There's many more. And what's the deal with all those credit card charges over a four-day span? Or what about that note left behind in the apartment written to Dee, which claimed Andrew and Jean were leaving to go hustle? What's that all about? And who are these people? Where'd they go? It's as if they popped up in Andrew's life got in close, days later, he's dead, and they vanish vanished into thin air. Now to be fair, none of what we've discussed makes them culpable for any of this in any way. Maybe it's all a coincidence. Regardless, I'd like to think it warrants a few questions at the least. And to our knowledge, these two individuals have never been questioned about the days surrounding Andrew's death, which to me is a little problematic, because you have to think there's a good chance these two could have some helpful information in all of this, not just in relation to Andrew, but also whoever sold the drugs that killed him. Another unresolved piece to this story. And you might be surprised to hear there's another curious piece to this story that we haven't covered, which has added even more questions to the growing list. The walls learned of this new information, courtesy of the Hamilton County Drug Force, just shortly before this
3: interview. Here's Bill and Sheila. Just a month ago we found out about him Andrew being in the hospital on December twenty eighth.
4: Cause he did have a hospital band. On his wrist, still, when the police found him. They had asked me if I knew he was in the hospital, and I said I was not aware that that had happened. Fortunately,
1: authorities took an interest in the hospital ban found on Andrew's wrist, and through some digging, they were able to learn more about its origin. Here's the short of it On December 28th, around 4 a.m., Andrew was transported to a hospital by ambulance after multiple 911 calls were made from his phone. We were denied access to the 911 calls, but it's our understanding that the calls were placed by an unidentified female, not Andrew. But his voice can be heard in the background saying he thinks he's overdosing. Authorities later learned that Andrew was given Narcan while in the hospital, a medicine known to reverse opioid overdoses. So it's pretty clear why he went to the hospital. The question is, who was with him And what happened after he was discharged later that
3: morning? That's the part of the timeline that gets really fuzzy and where all the questions start occurring. How did he get home? What happened after that? Why would somebody call 911 to go to the hospital and then go right back and do the exact same thing again? I mean, the only thing that makes sense is that he wasn't better. And he ended up getting worse when he got home and ended up passing away.
1: I wanna be careful here and point out that it's entirely possible that Andrew used drugs again after returning to his apartment that morning. But Bill does raise a point here in regards to turnaround time from being discharged for a drug overdose to dying from a drug overdose, because we really have no way of knowing the exact day that Andrew died. As a reminder, the hospital visit happened on December 28th, and according to Andrew's death certificate, He died on January 3rd. But put an asterisk next to that date, because all it's really telling you is when Andrew was found. His physical body tells a different story. Sheila opened up to us about this, and she didn't hold back. She described his skin discoloration, covered in a sheen, and an unmistakable odor that a fellow tenant reported smelling from outside the apartment. Now, there's differing opinions when it comes to the time at which a body decays, But without going too deep into the science of human decomposition and the various factors that can affect the time at which it occurs, I'll just say this. It seems that when Andrew was found on January 3rd, he was in a fairly advanced state of decomposition, which would mean that he'd likely been dead for days. How many? I'm not sure. But sometime before January 3rd. And the thing is, the day matters. That's why Sheila was so open to talking about it.
4: I want to picture what he looked like since I didn't get to see him. And when I saw that color of his arm, I think that triggered me wanting to know more. Like, why is it green and black and marbled and wet looking? And trying to figure out when he died. Because they're sticking with January 3rd, the day they found him. They stick with that date of death, and I... Don't believe that's the day he died. And just, I don't know, you have a special day you celebrate. Having that date, do you want to remember that person at that time? And I don't have that either.
1: Whether all the details surrounding Andrew's case are somehow isolated and unrelated, or they all point to a more comprehensive series of events, we may never know. All we can do is hope that the police will continue to investigate and piece this puzzle together or someone with information comes forward. Because the challenge for Andrew's loved ones hasn't been as much about accepting his overdose or even waiting on the authorities in their process. It's that the process has given them very few answers aside from the cause of death. They fear that once that cause was established, it changed the scope of the investigation.
2: I understand that it's like a lengthy process, but there's absolutely nothing that we can hold on to for closure. Like, you think about it, and it's just sad. Like, you think he was, like, begging for help, and then he got help, and then he came back, and then what happened? Like, why is this man not being pulled in for questioning? Like, no one's telling you that you need to arrest anybody, but it's like, we've got nothing else to go off of. That's what it's just so frustrating, is, like, these detectives are sitting here acting like All the information is right there for them, and that just classifies what Andrew's character was. Is because they found cocaine and fentanyl in a system that that automatically makes him a junkie and he was going to be on the streets anyways, or because he was taking in a homeless person. is like, that made him an easy target. Andrew is just being a good Samaritan. He took a lot of pride in that because he knew how isolating it was to be lonely and to be sad and to not have anybody. We, of all people, would know that, Having lost Kelsey and, like, knowing that there's nobody else that you can turn to when things are that bad besides each other.
1: My goal in telling Andrew's story was to support Bill, Sheila, Bree, and the rest of Andrew's loved ones in their quest for closure. But I'm also a firm believer that awareness drives action. And while police have certainly taken action in this case, my hope is that they will continue to work diligently and attempt to find resolution putting any questions of foul play to rest, one way or the other, and narrowing in on the source of the fentanyl, which is putting the lives of countless citizens at risk. Andrew's death highlights a much bigger crisis at hand, an epidemic to be specific. Fentanyl is killing Americans at an alarming and growing rate. Now, I'm not going to give an expose on this, but I do want to share just a few statistics here to help put this into perspective. According to the National Institution on Drug Abuse, 106,699 drug-involved overdose deaths were reported in the U.S. in 2021. And synthetic opioids, primarily fentanyl, were the main driver. American University Washington, D.C. reported that fentanyl is killing nearly 200 Americans a day. Those numbers are staggering. Fentanyl is now considered the deadliest drug crisis in our nation's history, and people we are living in it. I encourage you to take some time to educate yourself on the matter. There are plenty of good resources out there, but if you'd like a great place to start, you can visit the DEA's page on fentanyl at www.dea.gov resources facts about fentanyl, with a hyphen in between each of those words. Here you can find links to additional resources and ways to seek treatment if you or a loved one are struggling. If Andrew's story could help inspire even one of you, to make a difference in the life of one of the countless people affected by the same epidemic that played a role in his death, then you're keeping his legacy alive too. Because all Andrew ever wanted was to help others.
2: His loss to me, it was brutal. So it's how you deal with things. It's either insanity or I can rise above it and do everything that he would have wanted me to do and, you know, carry on the legacy that he had, which was be kind to everybody. And so with that, I'm going to take some of his ashes and I'm going to go to Thailand. I'm going to kind of let Andrew guide me through these experiences and find a place where I can sprinkle some of his ashes and also just, you know, like I want to leave a mark and help people
4: in some sort of way. Losing Andrew... I lost myself. Um, still trying to figure out who I am because I am not the same person. I have started The Soup Kitchen in Andrew's honor and and, and I continue to do that because I know that's what he would want. I am trying to move forward. It's so it's just so very slow. I, I feel guilty about a lot of things. I think I could have done more. And I, I'm sure every mother goes through this that's lost a child. It's not supposed to happen this way. And I hope if anybody gets anything out of any of this, it's like, just hug your kids. <laughs> hug on them, love them. Don't sweat the small stuff.
3: Your main goal as a parent is to protect your kids, right? And you can't do that. The world, it's not not set up that way. It's been hard trying to to be there for, for everybody. Thinking of all the good memories that we had, all the vacations we took, the trips we wanted to take. Going forward, it's you know keeping his memory alive, living life the way that that he would have been happy to see, and I think Sheila and I do that every day. Life seems more real, more cruel, but it's hopeful because Andrew was hopeful.
1: If you'd like to support the Wall family, they are currently raising money in hopes of hiring a private investigator to take a fresh look at Andrew's case. If you're interested in donating, you can find more information at www.gofundme.com slash justice for Andrew Thomas Wall with a hyphen between each of those words. If you have any information related to this case, please contact Cincinnati Crime Stoppers at 513-352-3040. Or visit p3tips.com slash 208. Thank you all for listening. Culpable Case Review is a production of Resonate Originals and Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey. Written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are myself, Mark Minnery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production from Jamie Albright and Taylor Floyd. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, and Adam Townsend of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at resonaterecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Additional content can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when we return with an all new case till next time.